Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Fullest Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Leah Gordon, who's a naturopathic and functional medicine doctor who specializes in root cause women's hormonal health, low libido, preconception, and fertility care. She is the owner of Womanhood Wellness and Tribe Medicine. She's a founding medical advisor for Needed, a pregnancy-focused nutrition company, and a passionate speaker and educator. Dr. Leah is also a mama-to-be after navigating infertility with her husband for almost seven years. She's committed to guiding, educating, and inspiring women along their womanhood journeys so that they can be the best version of themselves and they can cause a ripple effect of healing for their children, future children, families, and communities. Mm -hmm. Hi. Hi. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me and what a beautiful bio. And I'm so happy we like ran into each other and (laughs) met. Exactly. Like, I have a barbecue. But yeah, I just feel like as soon as we met, obviously, I could tell there was so much alignment between our um, views. And also, there's just so much to learn from you. And I'm happy to have you on the show so we can just chat more about, you know, everything that has to do with women's health, but also, you know, that goes into society and, and um, the way we treat our selves as a reflection of the way we treat others. So mm-hmm. I'm just really excited to to chat about all sorts of things today. And me too. This is like my favorite thing. If I could just do podcasts all day, I think that's what I would do, except I oh love seeing God. my patients too. That's great. <laughs> I got to do it all. I know. So you have an active practice mm-hmm. right now in San Diego. Yes. But it's you... Um, talk to people via Zoom and stuff too? Or? Yeah, since COVID, we went virtual. And because I'm pregnant now, um, I just pulled out of my physical space, which used to be a Trilogy Sanctuary. And I loved being there. It's a beautiful like um, plant-based cafe, yoga and event center. And it's like so near and dear to my heart. Um, but I went virtual and now I'm just staying virtual until after the baby's born. And then I'll reevaluate what I'm doing there. But yeah. So typically when you see people, um, like let's chat someone comes in to see you Mm -hmm. and they are they experience what you experience which is well it wasn't your infertility but we'll get Mm -hmm. into that yeah but basically they're you know trying to have a family and they're not able to so is that I know you see people that are going through all sorts of issues but Mm -hmm. women are primarily looking for help with fertility yeah um how do you like start with them Yeah, that's a good question. So I have two different camps that I see in the space of fertility. And one of them is people who want to come for more preconception care, meaning they're like, I want to have a baby in the next six to 12 months, or maybe next year, or I'm getting married, and I want to like make sure that I'm optimal and, you know, for having a baby. And so that is one camp. Um, And then the other camp is people who've been trying for a while and haven't been able to conceive. And so, you know, we would maybe call them infertility or subfertility. And so the approach is kind of similar with both. It depends on when someone comes to me for preconception, usually they haven't had a full workup with another doctor. So we're kind of starting from scratch, which is sort of my favorite because then I get to like be really comprehensive in everything that I'm doing. And I will look at both the female and the male partner, depending on the dynamic. I mean, sometimes women come to me and they're not even in a relationship, but they want to prepare for having a baby either in hopes that they'll, you know, find a partner soon or just to prepare for um, their own bodies. So 
I'm really comprehensive in the way that I support patients. And I start with a really comprehensive intake. And what, like starting from birth, moving forward, I look at everything in your life because whenever we're trying to optimize or solve a problem, so a lot of the other work that I do is, you know, root cause medicine. Mm-hmm. You really kind of act like Sherlock Holmes in a way. And so you're trying to find what could have happened in your life, what could happen in your lifestyle, what contributing factors could there be to imbalance. And so that becomes very obvious in um, a comprehensive intake with a timeline, for instance, people might say, you know, I want to have a baby, but I have gut problems and I have low energy and my periods are regular, you know, like usually people always yeah. have something. So it's like, okay, what happened? And, you know, through that intake, it becomes very clear, like, oh, maybe they were fine until they went to Thailand and got food poisoning. And since then they've had gut problems or, you know, they had Epstein-Barr as a teenager, which is mono. And maybe that's why they have low energy or whatever it is. There's so many different factors. So I do that. I send out for comprehensive lab work. So I'm big on functional and regular lab testing to just get a comprehensive look at what's going on with um, someone's health. And this is the same, whether they're preconception or infertility. Um, And then once I have all of that data, it's like I synthesize all the data and say, okay, now how can we optimize with lifestyle, diet, um, supplements, herbs, all the different things that you know, I have in my toolbox to support bringing a person back into balance. Because when we talk about fertility, fertility is a side effect of optimal health. And so to have optimal fertility, you as a being just need to be optimal. And that's physically, mentally, emotionally. And then obviously, if they have a partner, trying to loop him in. (laughs) Because oftentimes, I have had progressive couples that come to me, and they're like, both there. And they're like, we're both ready to like, you know, do this, or it's actually happened more when they've had a miscarriage. Um, And like the male partners now like, this is not okay. Like we need to make sure what's going on. And those are amazing when I can get couples like that. If a couple comes with infertility, meaning they've been trying for a long time, I have to kind of evaluate what they've already had worked up. Because a lot of times they've maybe been to other doctors, they've maybe been to their primary or even a fertility doctor, you know, and ruling out all of the most common causes of infertility first, things like physical blockages in the woman, you know, um, endometriosis can cause uh, scar tissue in the fallopian tubes. You can have fibroids and polyps and, you know, all these physical things. Um, you may like seeing if they've had any workup on their hormones on, uh, you know, the more obvious causes of infertility, which typically is what an infertility doctor does, like a conventional one. Sometimes they haven't had that workup, so I'll do it, or I'll refer out to, you know, their gynecologist or whatever to evaluate. And then especially if it seems sort of like vague and they're like, we don't know, everyone tells us we don't know why we're not getting pregnant. I'm definitely then looking at the male partner. He's often ignored, unfortunately, in the infertility space. So I right away do sperm analysis on him, um, evaluate what's going on with him and his health, just because he's 50% of the equation. Um, And then we start looking at more functional issues. So sometimes women can have infertility because of thyroid issues or because they have some sort of hormonal imbalance that's not super obvious or there's high inflammation or toxicity or um, even in some cases, mental emotional blockages or energetic blockages toward actually becoming pregnant. So there's so many factors involved. I mean, it's crazy to me and, you know, because I 
myself and my husband have gone through infertility for seven years and I help so many women. I mean, it's still a miracle every time someone, you know, shares with me that they're pregnant. And when it happens like spontaneously, which is how it, you know, should have happened in our lives for so many years. I'm always just like, wow, that's amazing. You know, like you just had sex and you got pregnant. That's so crazy. so amazing when you like realize the chances of getting pregnant are actually so slim. I mean, like yesterday, actually, I was um, watching a video on it because someone had told me that uh, it was like my craniosacral therapist. She was like, have you seen how beautiful it is when Mm -hmm. the sperm fertilizes the egg. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she was like, it's not like they just go in and like, I mean, because I think as a society, right, we're all about like competition. And so we're like the best sperm wins and Mm -hmm. this is how it happens. And like, obviously that is kind of how it happens. But Mm -hmm. she was like, it's like this energetic dance and like the egg does choose the sperm and the egg helps like I watched this video and it was like the egg literally helps the sperm like come up through contractions but then also like the other sperm that are coming that it doesn't want it like sends like not like something signals Mm -hmm. that essentially like prevent those different sperm that sperm to like get there as fast you know yeah no it's 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 amazing and you know I I'm a doctor, obviously, I'm very much into the science, but I also have a practice of like spirituality. And it's just like, fertility and, and pregnancy is just you're always like dancing in between of like, what is it, you know, what is it that determines which sperm, you know, finds the egg, because that becomes your, your little being baby. And it's just, it's just wow. so it's so beautiful. It's so cool. And it's a miracle every time like it never gets old, how amazing it is. Hi everyone, let's take a moment to discuss your mattress. Finding a comfortable, non-toxic, and chemical-free mattress became a main priority for me once I found out what traditional mattresses are made from. Not only are they not sustainable for the environment, but they're also detrimental to our health when we consider the amount of time we spend laying on our mattress, which is about a third of our lifetime. I'm so happy to announce that this podcast is supported by Avocado Green Mattress, offering mattresses that are handmade in California with certified non-toxic and organic materials. Avocado Green Mattress is climate neutral certified and a member of 1% for the planet, where 1% of all sales, not profits, but sales, which is a lot, go to environmental nonprofits. So visit avocadogreenmattress.com and use code THEFULLEST for $150 off a mattress for the fullest podcast listeners. I really, really love my mattress so much, and I can't wait to hear what you guys think about yours. I love it, and I love how much you love it. Like, you're just like, (laughs) I mean, just looking at you, you know, I know other people can't see you, but... It's just beautiful because you obviously had such a long road to now finally being pregnant and it took a while and I don't know at what point you realized it was your partner's infertility, but, um, but I love that you can just have so much love and appreciation for it Mm -hmm. rather than really like focus on how it 
it ended up being a different way than you had imagined, especially as a naturopathic doctor. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, it was, um, quite a journey for us. I mean, I can kind of go into that a little bit if you want me to, but our situation was very unique (laughs) because I actually found out about Mike's low slash non-existent sperm count when I was in naturopathic medical school in my sperm analysis class. So we had oh. to get a sample of sperm <laughs> to look at it under oh the microscope. <laughs> and so it was just a regular day <laughs> at school. And I was like, honey, I need a sample. And, you know, we're like in the lab. I mean, it, you know, when traumatic or like emotional things happen, it's just imprinted on your memory. And I just remember exactly where I was, exactly where everyone else was. And I was making slides to look at the sperm and there was none. Like I couldn't see any. And I was like, am I making a mistake? I kept making more slides. I was like starting to panic because I was like, where are all the sperm? And all my you know colleagues were like, oh my God, look at them all. Because in one microscope view, there's like hundreds of little tiny sperm like shooting around very fast. And like one slide that I made, there was like one dead sperm like floating across this Petri dish. And I literally just like fell to my knees and started crying in like the middle of class because... I didn't, I didn't expect that. Like it wasn't on our trajectory plan that he would have no sperm. Like I, you know, it it was just shocking. We hadn't even started trying yet. You know, I was in school. And so we went through the path of infertility very backwards. Um, I had to break the news to him, you know, typically a doctor does that. And I, being his wife and a, a medical student had to tell him that he had no sperm and, So we went on this whole long path of going to all of these different doctors, trying to figure out what was going on. And I wasn't a doctor yet, so I couldn't order labs. I couldn't, you know, support in that way. I don't even think we had taken, you know, our infertility class yet. So I wasn't as well-versed, you know, like I am now. I wish I'd had a doctor like me at that time because we went to so many different people and, you know, everyone was like, maybe it's his gut health, maybe it's blah, blah, blah. And a part of me was like, maybe let's just start trying. Maybe it'll be a miracle. And, you know, miracle things happen all the time that evade science. And so we then started trying. Um, We tried for a year. He was sawning at the time. I had him stop sawning. We did all sorts of things um, with different integrative doctors, fertility doctors. And um, yeah, I mean, he had a varicocele bilaterally, which is like swollen veins, which can be the cause of male factor infertility for some men. So we tried to reverse that through surgery. It didn't work. It actually made it worse. Um, He had, once I became a doctor, I took his health into my hands because I was like, no one is helping us. This is so frustrating. And I found really high heavy metals. He had mercury higher than anyone I've ever seen, except for one patient who eats fish every day. (laughs) And um, (laughs) it's like swordfish every day. (laughs) Oh my gosh, your mercury is so high. And uh, so we went through like a whole almost six months of chelating him and, you know, optimizing his uh, toxicity exposure. Um, it didn't really still help the, the external sperm. Um, and it was years before I, we finally came to the realization that we might have to try IVF. And we don't even know if he has any sperm in his testicles. Yeah. So um, we went, and it was hardest for me because I solve problems. That's like my job. My professional job is to solve problems that other people can't. And it was so humbling because I, I couldn't solve it. I didn't know what was going on, or at least at the time. 
So um, I had to go through a lot of therapy and do all sorts of like spiritual, you know, because <laughs> I felt yeah. like we were playing God. I was like, if we if we can't get pregnant, are we not meant to be parents? Like, yeah. if we do this, are we pushing something that's not supposed to happen? And it was really hard for me to like come to you know conclusion. But I always felt like we were meant to be parents, and so that you know guided me, and it actually put me on the path of a lot of spiritual healers. And through that process, I learned that this was all part of the plan, that our little baby souls needed us to be certain people for them. And this pushed us down that, you know, path of growth. And so it brought me a lot of peace to know that, you know, that I wasn't pushing something that wasn't supposed to happen. And um, when we were getting ready to start IVF, we actually did some genetic testing to make sure, you know, that our babies would be healthy. And in that, I found, I ordered the test and I found that Mike had a mutation for cystic fibrosis, which was probably tested at some point with a fertility doctor, but never was it brought up to us. And he had a mutation that could have affected his vas deferens, which is basically the tube that allows sperm to like leave the body. Um, and so that's probably another factor that wouldn't let sperm exit, you know? And so no matter what we did, it wasn't affecting it. And that brought me a lot of peace because it gave me hope that there was sperm in the testicles. And when we actually went through with IVF, I, (laughs) it's like so crazy. I had to do the egg retrieval. Um, even though there wasn't really anything wrong with me, that's just what you have to do to do ICSI, which is when you put the sperm in the egg. And so I came out of the operating room. I didn't have general anesthesia because I wanted to like avoid it if I could. And I was like, I can handle a needle in my ovary 14 times. <laughs> I did, oh but God. I was like, this is insane. Um, yeah. And so when I came out, I talked to the embryologist because um, Mike had been in surgery yesterday or the day before to collect sperm. And they still hadn't found sperm at that point. And I like, I mean, that was like the other like soul crushing moment of my life where I just broke down because I was like, Oh my God, like one, I just went through all of this with the hopes that, you know, he had sperm in his testicles and two, he might not, and we might not have biological children. And like the implications of that were just so sad, (laughs) but miraculously they found like six sperm and it turned into four healthy embryos, which is like a crazy statistic in IVF. So clearly the ones he had were really healthy he just Aww. didn't have a lot. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. And then I had a polyp, so I had to get that removed, but it probably wouldn't have prevented me from getting pregnant if his sperm count was normal. But, um, you know, a lot of times couples, it is both partner partners that have issues. Um, but sometimes it's just the woman and sometimes it's just the man. So yeah, that's a quick, uh, snapshot version. I have a much longer version on my Instagram, um, at Dr. Leah Gordon, where I wrote out like 13 parts of our whole infertility story, but yeah. Hi everyone. I want to take a second to share about my dear friend, Carson Myers brand, Sea and the moon. Carson has been a guest on our show. So if you happen to listen to that episode, you would know she launched Sea and the moon with its debut product, the Malibu made body scrub. This scrub uses brown sugar to gently exfoliate and delivers lasting hydration through a variety of organic botanical oils like almond, jojoba, 
coconut, and castor seed oil, and it's scented with a food-grade vanilla. The Malibu Made Body Scrub was born out of a necessity to nourish dry and sensitive skin without the use of harmful chemicals that are often found in everyday personal care products. As a doula, Carson saw firsthand how much information the skin takes in from the environment around it, including the many studies that have shown direct test results of over hundreds of chemicals that were found in umbilical cord blood and passed down from mother to child, not to mention the detrimental impacts man-made chemicals that are found in conventional skincare products have on our environment as a whole. The Malibu Made Body Scrub is made with organic, non-toxic ingredients and packaged in a waste-free glass jar that can be upcycled for continuous use. Sea in the Moon proudly donates a portion of its proceeds to the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is an organization that brings together scientists and lawyers to defend the health of Mother Earth. The Malibu Made Body Scrub has been called a miracle product by those who suffer from chronic dry skin and deemed the best scrub ever by Kim Kardashian. So for 20% off your See in the Moon order, use code FULLEST20 at checkout. So the journey took like seven years because at first you had found out and then you were trying all these different things and he was going into surgery and he was getting healthier, which is also such a plus and a blessing, right? Mm -hmm. You're two super healthy parents and, and you obviously that really probably was the reason why you chose the path that you have chosen Mm -hmm. in terms of your specialty. But then the fact that it ended up that way is also beautiful because I think, you know, just in the natural wellness world, it's hard to accept Mm -hmm. going that route. Yeah. You know, especially when you know you're fine. Yeah. And you know the implications of doing something like that. But then at the same time, that's it's that's what's so beautiful about it being available and mm-hmm. um, and not something you go to right away, yeah. but then something that's there if you need it. And yeah, I love that. Yeah, I mean, I you know, there's so much that I have to, to say in that space because working with fertility patients, I think people are shunted into IVF way too soon in situations when they don't need it um, because they haven't been thoroughly worked up uh, in a functional way or, you know, seen root cause. I mean, even the male fertility urologist that we had to go to, I would ask them all these questions because I knew, but they didn't care to know anything about what I knew about. So I was like, whatever, I was just playing dumb. And I would say like, are there any supplements or like dietary things that we can do to like support his sperm and they'd be like no not really and I'm just like have you literally looked at PubMed have you read the literature (laughs) there's a whole I mean I could give them a stack of paper like five inches thick on the literature on sperm improvement and I want to like shake them and be like you could be changing people's outcomes and their future children's health if you would just like help them in this way and so it's like it was very frustrating I was shocked honestly I was shocked that they didn't um, talk about that more. And so there's that perspective. So it's like, even though I went through it, I was frustrated by it a lot of the time. Totally. And not all IVF doctors are created equal. I actually interviewed four 
before I decided. And the doctor I went with was much more um, integratively minded. So I actually did what's called mini IVF, which is low dose uh, IVF. So like the least amount of medications. And then I actually did a, a natural transfer. So a lot of women who go through IVF and some women can do this and some can't depending on their situation. Um, but if you have normal cycles and there's another obstacle to your fertility, like was in the case with us, um, you can actually go based on your own ovulation. And so it's much harder for the doctor because they have to be available and they have to monitor you. But if you find a doctor who believes in that and is open to that, then it's way better. The outcomes are better. You're better because you don't have to pump yourself full of all the hormones to actually conceive. And I think that's why... You know, I took a break as well, three months after retrieval until transfer to help my body resettle. Cause I just know a stressed out hormone pumped body is not going to be as receptive to a baby. And so I think that's why our first embryo transferred perfectly healthfully. And I'm, you know, 25 weeks pregnant with her. So there's, there's ways that you can be integrative, I guess is what I'm saying. Even if you have to go down that route. Can you met okay, tell me what you mean by naturally using your cycle? Yeah. Rather than oh, because like if they don't go based off your cycle, you don't have the hormones that you need. And so then they just inject you mm -hmm. with more hormones to make your body think that you're oh ovulating or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Okay. Oh wow, that's amazing. And then how were you able to wait? Like you just kept them frozen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's wow. It's recommended now to do frozen transfers. So they used to do fresh transfers, which you think would be better. And what that means is like you go in that day, the egg and the sperm are put together to make an embryo. Six days later, they're like ready to be implanted and they would just implant them in the woman that, that week. However, the body just went through this horribly traumatic, you know, situation where you were pumped full of tons of hormones, you blew your ovaries up to huge sizes to gather all of these different follicles as eggs. And your body is in shock, you know, you, you went through a surgery to retrieve those eggs. And so if you transfer an embryo one week after that, yeah, you're not in the right situation to receive a baby. And so if you can then put, they, they basically freeze the embryos, which again is crazy. And it is still hard for me to wrap my mind around, even though we did it, um, because, you know, it just, it's, it seems bizarre. But um, then if you give your body a chance to resettle, you know, in naturopathic medicine, because I work so much with hormones, we really say three months is the ideal time to monitor any change in hormones, whether you're trying to get off birth control or you've made a change with an herb like Vitex. You know, we don't even reevaluate for three months. It just takes the body a while to reset. So I always recommend three months between, you know, retrieving eggs and transferring. And um, that's what we did. I had to remove a polyp as well during that time. And then when I, yeah, when I do my natural transfer, it's just based on my own ovulation versus um, if you don't do a natural transfer, they put you on birth control to control your cycle. They give you medication wow. to, you know, artificially push an ovulation and then they keep you on estrogen and progesterone to make it's just like an artificial pregnancy oh yeah so it can and for some women that is the only option because they don't have a normal cycle or they aren't ovulating but if you do have a normal cycle and there's other obstacles to your infertility i highly recommend natural transfers that's such great advice and i that's not something you would find <laughs> on just any search. No. i mean now you can find anything on a google search but like 
even if you're a diehard researcher. Yeah, you know, I don't even know. I, I mean, I learned about it from a friend who went through IVF and, you know, you kind of go down the rabbit hole of finding more integrative people in this space. And Dr. Chang at Hanabusa is who I went with, and he's kind of a pioneer and more of an integrative way of doing IVF. And I think it makes a huge difference. That's so great. So, okay. Well, that is an amazing story and I'm so happy for you. And I, I love, I love that you're pregnant now. <laughs> with you. You're 25 weeks pregnant. Like you're almost there. I mean, I know. You're almost there. It's so wild. But in terms of, okay, you mentioned there are like two camps, right? Preconception where people just want to prep their body, whether they're with their partner or not you know, that can take years anyway. So like, it's great. I think it's great for women to do that in their 20s and their mid 20s, like just start focusing Mm -hmm. on that because you never know. And in that sense, I think it's important to kind of talk about birth control, the pill. Mm -hmm. And I also just think like, it's so crazy. I don't know if I told you this, but I had like a family friend, she just turned 16. And she was like, I just started dating my high school boyfriend. And I need to go on birth control. And I was like, no, don't. But then I was like, I don't have like the resources. You know, I know Alyssa Vitti or I know like certain people. Right. Mm -hmm. But then like, there aren't very many because there aren't gynecologists that you go to. She's like, do you have a good OB? And I'm like, no, (laughs) I don't actually. And like my midwife's going to be my OB Mm -hmm. moving forward. So can't send her to a midwife. And I needed to send her to someone who can educate her about how to take control of like her cycle versus just give up that agency and just like have someone else tell her to take a pill, mm-hmm. which is like what her mom wanted her to do. Right. And then at the same time, she was like, also, everyone in my family just got vaccinated against COVID, but like, I don't want to, and it doesn't feel mm-hmm. right to me. And they really wanted to do it because they really want to travel and they don't want to deal with all the testing. And I just like really don't want to do it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like fertility, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, whatever reason people want to do it fine. But like, if you're a like woman Mm -hmm. who is hoping to have children, like it just terrifies me. It makes me so sad. So I kind of wanted to talk to you about that because I think a lot of people are staying silent Mm -hmm. about that I think it's scary to speak up about it. And so if you're willing to share, maybe if you've seen, you're actively seeing people in your practice. And I think that's who we should be asking. Not people who, even like Anthony Fauci, mm-hmm. right? Like he's not a practicing doctor. Mm-hmm. He doesn't actually know what's going on with people at like the level that you do because you see patients every right. day. Yeah, no. It's always going to be secondhand information. Yeah, those are two huge cans. So you can totally open them both. Yeah. Um, I know. So I'll speak briefly to the birth control and then we can talk about the vaccine too and how it affects fertility and, and choices. I, I'm big on informed yeah. consent as every doctor should be, in my opinion, and first do no harm. And unfortunately, for some weird, bizarre reason, that is not being practiced right now um, in relation to this new therapy. So um, yeah, happy to, to share about it. So back to birth control. Yeah, birth control. Oh, gosh, it's so complex and complicated. There's such a rich history uh, to understand about birth control. If you're interested, there's a great book called The History of the Pill. 
um, or history of birth control. And then your brain on, on birth control are two great resources if you want to learn more and dive deeper. Um, we, it's just such a... <clears throat> Birth control is seen as a cure-all for all hormonal and women issues in the conventional yeah. model. And unfortunately, that is doing women a huge disservice. And I'm not anti-birth control for every person. I take it case by case with all my patients. You know, I have some young women who tell me straight up or we've figured out in their, you know, evaluation that they are not responsible enough to monitor and track their own bodies. And they just, the risk of them becoming pregnant is so much greater than someone who is really motivated and excited to like monitor and track and be proactive in their health. And so in a situation like that, you know, we have to weigh the pros and cons. And so if I do need to support someone on birth control, I make sure, which is a step beyond most, you know, conventional docs and ob that they have adequate nutrients that the pill depletes, that we're working on their gut health because the birth control pill can affect your microbiome and your gut. Um, we support their liver. And so we're supporting the body if it is the route that they choose to go down to actually have hormonal birth control. Which kills me because I like taking, remembering to take the pill is also just <laughs> totally. like the same as just taking your temperature. Totally. But, I yeah. know. I know. So there, I like never remembered to take yeah. the pill when I was on it. And then, so we have to also get into plan B because I've used that several times. <laughs> yes, totally. And I'm like, what is that? Like that was long, long before my journey. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then that's why some women opt for like the hormonal IUD. I'm not a huge fan of the shot or the implant. I think those are really not great options. Um, you know, the NuvaRing and the hormonal IUD, they have pros and cons, but the ideal, perfect, my dream world is that women learn as soon as they get their period, all about their bodies, how their hormones work, how their periods work and how they can prevent pregnancy naturally. Because the window of uh, becoming pregnant is really only like five or six days in your cycle. And that's if you're like, even have a consistent partner, you know, if you just have sex once in a while, you know, if you really know where you are in your cycle and you use an extra protection, like a condom, you know, you can do a really good job of, of supporting that. The obstacle comes is if, is, is if a woman does not have a regular cycle, something like PCOS, where they could ovulate on day 14 one day and maybe day 57 the next day. And like, that can be yeah. really challenging. But again, if you have PCOS, most conventional docs put them on birth control, but I would say investigate why you have PCOS and get to the root cause of it, right? So I actually have a program that I developed this exact reason for. It's called Moon Medicine. Um, and so, oh yeah, gosh. because the need was so great in my practice as well of teaching women how to track their cycles and understand their hormones and how to prevent pregnancy naturally or conceive easily, you know, if they wanted that. So yeah, it's on my website um, at tridemedicine.com and also womanhoodwellness.com. Um, it's called Moon Medicine. But anyways, that would be my dream is to teach women how to actually understand what's going on with their body. And if you can do that at an early age, you know, think about how empowered a woman would be and how much healthier she would be not having the effects of the pill because especially in my practice, I see this all the time. So many side effects from low libido to gut issues, to mood issues, to, you know, nutrient deficiencies leading to hair loss and just all sorts of issues can happen 
Um, not every woman has issues from the pill, but a lot of them do. I was one of them with low libido and it still plagues me to this day. And knowing now that my husband had no sperm, I cannot believe that I was ever on birth control. <laughs> like yeah, so yeah, ironic. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I have to say about birth control and just directing um, people to better resources. Like I said, I created one for that exact reason. Cause yeah, it wasn't out there. It's like, how do we teach women this information? There's not like a, a book that all women get when they get their period to teach them how to, to handle that. So, um, that's really important. Also like coming off of birth control is like, I never had an issue that I noticed while I was on it, but final, but obviously I knew like, I don't want to take a pill every day. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's good for me. But so coming off of it, I had so many mm-hmm. issues and that's a whole other thing yes. that people don't know It about. is. And Womanhood Wellness is actually my online uh, course platform. And one of my programs that I'm building is called Breaking Up with Birth Control because uh, getting off birth control is such an issue. Um, and the reason is because one... A lot of women are put on birth control because of other problems, such as acne or PCOS or irregular cycles or painful periods or you name it, woman issue, fill in the blank, they're put on birth control. So the the physiological issues that led to those imbalances to begin with that they were put on the pill for are still at play if they weren't ever addressed. So when you pull the pill, it's essentially like unplugging the fire alarm. When you give someone birth control, there's a raging fire and the fire alarm's going off. You know, these are the symptoms like acne, painful periods, whatever. Giving someone birth control is just unplugging the fire alarm. You're like, oh, great. We solved the problem. It's not loud and beeping and annoying anymore. <laughs> you know, your symptoms are better. We solved your problem. Yeah. Uh, but the fire's still going and it will continue to rage all through the time that you are on birth control. And the minute you say, I want to get off for whatever reason, whether that's because you just want to get off or you want to have a baby or whatever. You then plug the the, uh, fire alarm back in and it's like, whoa, like the fire is still here. It is still raging. And so what you have to do is address all of those imbalances before you pull the pill, ideally, um, so that when you pull the pill, all you're dealing with are just the hormonal, you know, rebound kind of effects from the pill rather than... You also have a crazy gut. Your microbiome is all messed up. Your diet is, you know, not good. You're full of inflammatory chemicals. You have, you know, nutrient imbalances leading to depression or whatever, like whatever imbalance was in you. It's important to support that first. That's how I practice before I pull pills for women. Um, And then, you know, after birth control, supporting the liver, making sure that your diet is optimal, um, you know, your gut is optimal and and supporting on all the ways that the pill kind of disrupts. So it's, it's a process. And the fact that we just kind of have women stop and then they're like struggling and suffering and they don't know what to do. It's, it's so sad. That's, that's why I created the work that I do. You know, I have my practice, Tribe Medicine, but Womanhood Wellness, I are four programs that I think are missing in women's health that are so important that need to be talked about and shared in such a bigger way. So yeah, there's so much to unpack there. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's so, it's so crazy too. Cause other times when you get off medication, you know, you kind of like lower the dose, lower the dose, but birth control, it's yeah. like you're on yeah. or off, you exactly. know? Yeah. 
Um, and then also like addressing root cause is difficult when you're mm-hmm. on something because there are probably so many things that you just don't know until you get off yeah, of it anyway. Exactly. Yeah. So you do the things you can, the, the signs that you yeah. can, such as like I said, diet, gut, liver detox, nutrient support, yeah. those kind of things. And then it is kind of a, we'll see what happens when you get off. You know, some people handle it just fine and some don't. And you have to be able to support that for sure. Okay, so let's talk about the vaccine (laughs) for people who are choosing whether to take it or not. And also for people who have chosen not to that are being affected by it. I'd like to know if you've seen that in your practice. Um, Definitely heard that from people who firsthand have been affected by it, who have not had the vaccine, but literally have come out of menopause Mm -hmm. because of it, um, had a miscarriage because of it. And um, I think it's doing so many people a disservice to censor this information because like our whole, like in terms of being a progressive society, like talk about um, what's it called? Like the Me Too Mm -hmm. movement. It's all about listening Mm -hmm. to each other and listening to women Mm -hmm. and then and then when it's something that we just don't want to listen to, we just shut them out and censor yeah. them. It's like so wild it's, to me. It's not only wild, it's completely unethical. And, you know, no other, well, I can't say that. Maybe this has happened and things have been censored in the past and we don't know. And I don't know why they are so vehemently set on censoring information. Like as a doctor, when my patient comes to me and says, should I get vaccinated or not? I need to know all the data to ac- accurately answer that question. You know, if someone comes to me yeah. and says, should I get surgery or not? I say, okay, well, these are the known risks with surgery. These are the known benefits. This is your unique situation. I think in your situation, the risks outweigh, you know, the benefit or in your situation, the benefits outweigh the risk depending on your, you know, picture. We as doctor and patient relationships should have the ability to have that conversation. And if half the information, any of the risks are being silenced, censored and kept from not only us, but also the public. I mean, that's the most unethical thing I've ever, I've ever seen. And it is happening rampantly and it's so crazy. And so, yeah, I can definitely share what I've seen, not only in my practice, but also in the research that I see that is not shared on mainstream media. Cause um, my husband works in biotech in the space of viral immunology and oncology. And so this is like a big part of the world he's in is the actual biotech side, you know, and I'm in the natural medicine side. So we have a breadth of knowledge between us and he's very passionate about researching this. And I obviously need to know it from my practice. So we go down, uh, you know, avenues of finding information that maybe the average mainstream, uh, media or person isn't exposed to. So in my practice, I've definitely seen issues with women and their periods. I mean, it sounds benign, but the reason that people are having strokes and heart attacks and pericarditis and all of these issues from the vaccine, which is all, you know, shared on the CDC website, if you wanted to go look that up, um, there's, you know, is a reporting system for vaccines and there have been already over 5,000 deaths, um, which is very grossly underreported, according to a recent study. Um, and lots of young people are having issues. The period issue we see, I mean, almost on the regular, any woman I've seen who's either been vaccinated or has been around, people who've been vaccinated have had funky things with their periods. 
Um, anything from, yes, women coming out of menopause who haven't had a period in years are now bleeding. Um, I have a patient who's just excreting tissue and no blood. And she's been around a lot of vaccine people. She's not vaccinated herself. I have another patient who started bleeding mid-cycle and had a clot the size of an apple um, come out of her vagina. I've had patients with just all sorts of funky things. And so, you know, I know one of the rebuttals from one of like the, the doctors that the mainstream media has chosen to rebuttal all of these thousands of women who are having issues is that we don't understand why that would happen. There's no like rational reason. So therefore it can't be happening. And to me, that's the opposite of science. (laughs) When they say you're anti-science, I'm like, no, science isn't a belief. Science is a process of understanding the truth and looking at what's going on around you and asking questions and then investigating it. So when you're seeing something happening, even if you don't understand the mechanism of action, you study it, you don't reject it based on your belief that it can't be happening because it doesn't fit into your paradigm. So that is so frustrating. Um, And then you know, we are seeing so many issues. There's a ton of studies, again, that are being done all over the world that are being censored, where they're seeing that the spike protein, the assumption was made. So in COVID, the virus has little spike proteins on the outside of it, like little hairs. And the assumption was made in the development of this vaccine, that the spike protein was sort of benign, it was a part of the virus, but that that's what they could take to code into the mRNA of the vaccine. So Outside of Johnson and Johnson, all the other vaccines are mRNA, meaning you inject this material into your body. And they also thought it would stay in the arm, in the injection site, um, in a lipid. Uh, We're finding in studies, they're actually tracing it uh, around the body that it not only doesn't stay in the arm, it goes to all of your organs, including your brain. It crosses the brain barrier and it is highly concentrated in the ovaries. So I'll get to that in a minute. But essentially, the assumption was made that they thought it would stay in the arm. That's been proven not to be true. The other assumption was the spike protein was benign. So that's what they chose to make the vaccine on. That assumption is also being proven not to be true. They're actually proving in studies now that it's the spike protein itself that is the problem. That is the pathogen. That is the dangerous part of the virus. And so when we, you know, inject that into someone's body, we're telling the body to make it. That's what the mRNA vaccines do is we inject it into the body and then our body's own cells make that spike protein. So if that assumption that we thought it was safe is now not to be true, we are now factories. You know, people who've been uh, injected with this treatment are now factories of the spike protein. We don't know what that's going to do, right? We don't know what that's going to do to fertility. We don't know what that's going to do long-term. We've obviously seen quite a few issues. Obviously, people have died of COVID and people are dying of the vaccine. It sucks. Both aren't great. (laughs) And, you know, it's been proven as well that the virus itself was manufactured. That, again, is not being shared on mainstream media, but, you know, Fauci is implicated in all of that. And it's proven, again, my husband works in the viral manufacturing space with PhDs that work in people who design viruses. I mean, that's like what they do. And there's sequences in COVID that you don't find in nature. It's like finding a wrench on the moon. <laughs> you know, you would know that that's not wow. naturally made there. So when you actually yeah. sequence the virus. So for what reason, you know, that's the whole rattle hole we could go down of gain of function. And why Fauci said he wanted to support gain of function was to try to create, you know, 
prevent something like this from happening. However, it has happened. Um, you know, they were playing scientists in the Wuhan lab in China, unfortunately, and it got out for what reason we don't know. But either way, both aren't great. You know, COVID's not great. The vaccine's not great. However, the difference is when you come in contact with an actual virus, your immune system can fight it for most people, you know, 99% um, of people and those who can't have a compromised immune system. But those who have a compromised immune system also have a hard time with the injection because their immune system is struggling. And um, your the spike protein is now being manufactured in, you know, healthy bodies like young people. And because their immune systems are so strong, we're seeing really interesting, you know, reactions. And none of this was studied, right? The, the vaccines were put into emergency use authorization, which means that they bypassed all of the testing required for a medication to go to market. Um, typically, if there's a new med, even something that's supposed to be very benign has to go through many, many years of rigorous trials and animal trials and human trials and, and all of that. And that was all skipped, obviously. Um, and this gets into obviously more even rabbit holes because the only way they were able to do that is because they said there were no other treatments that were safe, which, you know, we've also have been proven not to be true, yeah. such as hydroxychloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, ivermectin, you know, and all of the natural support, like C, Z, zinc, all of that. So they had to demonize those medications because if they were allowed to be talked about and shared, they couldn't get their emergency use authorization of the vaccine. Why they're pushing this so hard and so fast, again, I don't know. I won't get into that because that there's so many different <laughs> theories out there. But this, everything I'm sharing is just the truth of the science that's been proven. And so the, um, yeah, the fact that we don't know what it's going to do. We're seeing lots of strange results in women with their cycles, lots of strange results in kiddos and young people with pericarditis, lots of strokes in like 30 year old women that doesn't happen. That's so rare. Um, and so the spike protein tends to affect the, the vascular system and the epithelial lining leading to clots and bleeding issues. That's what strokes, heart attacks, um, you know, clots with women and their periods and all of that is an issue, but tying it all back into fertility, <laughs> We don't know what this is going to do to fertility. And because the spike protein is concentrating heavily in the ovaries, that's concerning. Um, we have seen some reports of sperm count already being affected. And this can be true from COVID and the vaccine because it's a spike protein that seems to be an issue. But again, the vaccine might be more of a problem because we are generating it ourselves in our bodies. And we don't really know when that stops because this was kind of just a giant experiment, right? Like we are the experiment. Cool. So all that being said, let's say it was all like out of good intention, you know, to support the public, as they say, the fact that they're not sharing that this information is coming up um, the fact that they, you know, are covering up other safe treatments, the fact that they're, you know, recommending it for children and pregnant women when we have no idea what it does. To me, it violates all the Nuremberg, you know, laws, which was what was set in place after World War II to prevent mass experimentation on people and have safe uh, research practices to prevent, you know, the abuse of people in research studies. <laughs> and they're all being violated right now. And as a doctor, it is so hard to watch. And as so many top doctors and scientists have shared, it's absolutely insane because we're here to protect our patients and the public. And 
we're the ones seeing things and, and, and it's all being, we're being muzzled and being silenced. And, and it's just, it breaks my heart. So many people are dying unnecessarily and there's no informed consent. And again, at the end of the day, if you want to get surgery, that's great. If you want to get the vaccine, that's great, but you should know what your risks are and you should have informed consent. And the fact that that's not happening is blowing my mind. And, you know, a lot of the people who are coming out and sharing this information, they're not just average run-of-the-mill doctors. They're the top virologist, the man who discovered HIV, the past CDC director, um, the past Pfizer director, um, the man who invented mRNA technology. All of them are like, we made a big mistake. And they're all being (laughs) censored. They're, They're like the top people. So... It's bizarre. And again, I'm all about having the conversation with the person and the patient. And, you know, if you feel that your risk of COVID is so much greater than the vaccine, that should be your choice to get it. And if you feel that the risk of the vaccine is so much, you know, worse than actually getting COVID or, you know, taking your chances of potentially not getting it, you should have that choice as well. You shouldn't be coerced into it or fired because of it or, you know, not allowed to live your life because of that it, w- since when are we coercing people and bribing people and, and forcing people into medical treatments? This is insane. <sighs> and it's happening on a global scale. It's like, it's not just happening in one country and then other people can like hopefully open their eyes and see what's happening over a period of time and then come in and do something about it. It's like, this is happening on a global scale. And this is a huge issue. And I completely agree with everything you said. And I loved, um, I just loved the thorough um, explanation of how and why this is all happening Mm -hmm. and just like speaking to the facts really. But I guess now my question for you and a lot of our audience and a lot of people are wondering, okay, you know, so if these people who have decided to undergo undergo this like gene therapy... Mm -hmm are now becoming factories for the spike protein. Mm -hmm. And we know that mRNA is really mobile and this could transfer or transmit from person to person because we're just like the type, I mean, yeah, that's like a whole nother conversation. Like we human beings, the way we connect with each other, the way we communicate, the way we do everything, it's like so much more than our physical being. It's energetic Mm -hmm. and it's things. I mean, if anyone is even interested in quantum Mm -hmm. physics, right? Like you understand that it's not like I'm just going to wear a mask and everything's just going to stay right here and it's not going to go away and we're totally safe because I have a Mm -hmm. mask on. It's like, no, fluids. I mean, exchanging bodily fluids, talking to each other, sharing a drink or whatever, just, you know, touch, right? There's just so many different things that can affect us. And I don't want people, obviously, I'm not here to try and like have people live in fear because at the end of the day, you and I are on the same page. There should be the opportunity to have Mm -hmm. choice. We wish that there was informed consent because probably less people would be choosing this experiment Mm -hmm. if they knew the side effects. Um, But now that there are people that are factories for the spike protein, and then there are people that don't want the spike protein in them at all. Mm -hmm. Or it's like, what do we do? And also, yeah, what are things that you recommend your patients, I guess, for this? I think overall, probably just like staying on top of our well-being Mm -hmm. and, and taking supplements. But I'm curious if you think that if I don't know if you know this, obviously, 
but maybe you do because of your husband. But do you, do we know that if it like does transfer over, then does that mean we just become factories as well? (laughs) That's a good question. I mean, the simple answer is we don't know. The things that we do know are that one, I don't know if it was designed this way intentionally. There are, um, people in the biotech space who are working on vaccines that can be transmitted from person to person, essentially to like create a very quick vaccination of like a whole society. Um, you know, and obviously the people working that are probably good people. They think that they're doing a great thing. Um, it's just the concern is if the vaccine is causing problems in itself, you know, we got to think about that. Um, so I don't know if this is that situation or not, or if it was, again, a mistake, you know, that we're like, oh, interesting that we're seeing this. So we don't know. More studying needs to be done on, you know, the people who have been injected with this. Uh, are they shedding, you know, spike protein? How long do they shed it after getting vaccinated? How long do they continue to produce spike protein? These are all unanswered questions that would normally have been found in studies over years and years of testing something so that we knew what we were doing when we gave it to the public, but we don't know any of that. And so the goal now would be to be collecting that data. Um, I know there's a group of women who are studying the effects of the injection on women in their menstrual cycles. I don't know if they're taking it one step further and studying it on the women who haven't been uh, injected but are still experiencing issues, but that needs to be done. But this is all so new. And obviously, when you think about science, like, again, science isn't a belief. You don't believe in science. You're not like a, I believe in science or, you know, like what Fauci says is, if you don't believe in me, you don't believe in science, which is absolutely not true because science is a process of understanding what's going on around you. But although science is should be pure of of heart and intention. A lot of studies are only done if they are well-funded. And so sometimes things like seeing if women who haven't been vaccinated are having issues, you know, who's going to fund that study? You know, someone's got to fund it. So how quickly that happens, I have no idea. We have seen some reports of miscarriages of women not only who have been given the injection, but also who have been around those who have. It doesn't mean it's going to happen all the time. So I would say if you're pregnant, just be cautious. You know, if you're choosing not to have the injection or, you know, I would maybe talk to your doctor and and see if it makes sense to wait until more of the data comes out. You know, if, if you're on the fence and you're like, well, I really want to get it, but like, I'm just not sure. Just keep waiting because with every day that passes, we have more data and, I just can't believe in my heart. I just, I know that like there are not so good people in the world and there are a lot of good people in the world. And I just can't believe with the sheer amount of people coming out and sharing that like they can keep this information from us forever. Um, that's like my optimistic belief that like it will eventually come out, but just keep waiting on the data. Um, in the meantime, just exercise caution if you're concerned, like I'm pregnant. So, you know, I choose not to, spend excessive amounts of time with people who've been newly uh, injected just in case, you know, we don't know. I could, that could be a complete issue that doesn't need to happen. But for me, based on the data that I've seen, I just want to be careful. I don't want to lose my baby girl. Um, you know, so I'm choosing to 
you know, ask people who are my massage therapists, you know, I choose to go to people who haven't had the injection yet, just because they're touching me all over. And we're, you know, sharing a lot of space together. But I had a baby shower, you know, last weekend, in Colorado, and a lot of the people there had been injected, and I hugged them and it's okay. And I'm like, hopefully I'm okay. Um, you know, I'm not going to stop living life, but also exercise caution and not expose myself unnecessarily until we know more. Um, as far as, you know, being actually injected with mRNA, that is coding for a genomic sequence that makes the spike protein. So it's going to be different for someone who's been injected with the gene therapy than for someone who's just inhaling extra spike protein. It would be my understanding just based on physiology. Again, we don't know exactly, but it would be in my understanding more like inhaling the virus, you know? Um, because when you inhale COVID, you also get spike protein. It's on the outside of the virus. Um, and your immune system, you know, can support and attack that. Um, so when you get the actual injection, you're actually producing it yourself. So even though you're around people who have had the gene therapy, you won't necessarily get the mRNA that would code in your body to make the spike protein. You would just be exposed to the spike protein. So obviously just, you know, exercising caution, oh. um, supporting your immune system as much as you can. Um, our bodies are really intelligent and smart. Um, and then around COVID, um, you know, things like licorice, COVID attaches to the ACE2 uh, receptor in our bodies. And things like licorice help block ACE2. But you have to be careful if you're on blood pressure medication or if you have high blood pressure. I'm obviously not your doctor. Always consult with your doctor. Um, and then just like zinc, vitamin C, quercetin, all the things that we know that help to boost your immune system. And yeah, just maybe be more careful if you're pregnant or wanting to become pregnant in the next you know, a few months of spending excessive amounts of time with people who have been injected. And if, if your partner already has, or you already have, you know, we're going to do the best we can. I mean, as more information comes out, hopefully we will have resources for those people. Some people who are coming out don't see it going very well, but um, hopefully that won't be the case. I hope that I hope that they're wrong, but we'll see. I've also heard about um, if you're around people, like, I mean, you've also, you have like a lot of knowledge around herbs. Mm -hmm. So pine needle mm -hmm. tea, when you're pregnant, you can't take that, right? Or is it a you know, really small dose? I don't know about pine needle tea in pregnancy specifically, but I know pine needle tea outside of pregnancy is really great um, for spike protein, preventing COVID, preventing the cytokine storm. So um, yeah, there's great resources. Uh, well, <laughs> they're probably all taken down on the internet. I mean, <laughs> my, my husband, for anyone who doesn't think censorship is happening, um, my husband has a whole library of videos that are taken down within minutes after being posted uh, that he saved his computer uh, because they just disappear as soon as they're posted. So um, you wouldn't know that censorship is happening unless you knew something was there and now it's not. Uh, and so when you are a doctor and you and or your colleagues are being censored, uh, it becomes very clear very quickly <laughs> the censorship that's happening. But regardless, um, yes, pine needle tea has been uh, found to be helpful but I would have to check into that for the safety and pregnancy. Um, however, it's just so funny. I, I joke that, you know, we tell pregnant women not to eat deli meat and take herbs, but they can take an experimental <laughs> injection that we have I no know. idea what it does uh, to anyone. Um, so very interesting. <laughs> it's a very interesting uh, situation. Yeah, no soft use, mm -hmm. no soft use. Yeah. But you 
but we highly recommend you get the flu vaccine mm-hmm. um that you get like whatever other detail yeah. maybe even and then yeah just so it's many crazy. things um, speaking okay so one last thing that i kind of want to get into before we yeah. stop I, I literally can talk to you forever <laughs> i think I definitely have to have Yeah, you I was going to say, so we can fun. talk. We can do this multiple. Most people who have me for podcasts have me back again because there's so much to yeah. say. It's like, there's just so much. But, you know, all this reminds me because this is going on in our society, in our culture, and like we mentioned earlier, around the globe. But one other thing that I know affects um, just, well, I don't know if it affects fertility, but I guess you could speak to this, but that affects our mental well-being and our our connection with our partner is porn. And I wanted to get into that because, um, you know, just like culture is like what reminded me of it. But like I mentioned to you earlier, I am so anti-porn <laughs> and I just think it's like so low vibe and it makes me, it just bums me out that it's a thing. But I also understand like, I said before, I've had a porn star on the show. Um, She's a friend of mine. I don't judge her. She loves her career. She's an incredible woman. I love her. And um, she really just like opened my eyes to so many things when we had our conversation because I said to her, I don't think this is right. We have little children that are, you know, looking at this content and it's so insane to me that they're learning about things through porn. Mm -hmm. And she said, it's not my job to educate these children. It's their parents' jobs. It's the job of, you know, whatever you believe. Some people believe it should be parents. Some people believe it should be the Mm -hmm. school because sometimes parents don't do it. Whatever the case is, she's like, I want to do what I want to do. This is my career. I shouldn't just all of a sudden mean that I'm in charge of, you know, these children, um, which I totally respected. And on one hand, I'm still like, but still, (laughs) I don't think that content is okay. But then on the other hand, I get, I also understand like some people have said to me, yeah, well, I was in like a really bad place and I just needed to like connect with myself. And that's what I used to connect with myself. And I didn't have a partner and that helped me. And so you know, to each their own. Again, like the vaccine, I think it's the same thing for me. I, I just, I don't want to partake in it, but everyone should have the choice of what they want to do. I wish it wasn't such a big part of our society, such a big part of our culture. I wish it wasn't so vulgar and I wish it um, didn't, but again, I'm just different. Mm-hmm. I don't even like, yeah, to, like totally. These are are great. I love that the title of this podcast is going to be Infertility, Birth Control, Vaccines, and Porn. (laughs) It's like all the things. Um, So yeah, porn. But how have you seen it affect people Mm -hmm. in your practice? I'm so curious. Yeah. So I, my other specialty outside of hormones, fertility is libido. And um, I specialize a lot in female libido, um, although males have low libido as well. Um, for sure, it's just less common than women, um, and so <laughs> that because of porn, <laughs> probably. Well, we can get into that. So there, this concept. I mean, I'll try to keep this succinct because we could take a whole episode to talk about just this concept. Yeah. So I'll try to like not get high winded, but um, okay. essentially, <sighs> sexuality is really complicated, and the 
desire to have sex is libido. The uh, actual physiological response to sexual stimuli is arousal. And we have the majority of our sexual libido or desire is actually in our brains. You know, it's between our ears, not between our legs. And so what turns someone on and, you know, gets someone in the mood that then also turns into arousal, which is the physiological response, is different for every person. And it can be based on past experiences or just their own, like, I mean, we can get into like soul level stuff, but a lot of it is experiences. So when we talk about that and we talk about porn, porn is, how do I even go into this? It is very, it is entertainment. Porn is entertainment. It is not real life. That's problem number one, because most people who watch porn don't get that. And most, um, historically men have been more of the porn consumers, although women, you know, consume porn as well, because for some degree, males' brains are wired a little bit more to be visually stimulated that's not across the board. I'm speaking in absolute like generalities, but across the board uh, in generalities, males usually are more stimulated visually. That's why, you know, to them, they might find a woman who's attractive and like, you know, all of that may be more stimulating than a woman might find a man who's like taking care of them or is like a strong, like, you know, provider, you know, we just have different reasons and we can go into evolutionary psychology and why that's the case. So, you know, a lot of our culture right now, our generation is full of men who were raised on porn, meaning that the minute they went through puberty, they had access to the internet where there was porn and people who make porn either out of good intention or not so good intention, it's highly lucrative <laughs> because just like candy and alcohol and gambling, it's very addictive because it responds to a reward center in the brain. It, you know, when you're doing uh, something that brings pleasure, it triggers that reward center. And as humans and a lot of other animals as well, we keep repeating things that bring pleasure, you know, whether that's eating candy or drinking alcohol or gambling or whatever it is. So obviously the business model of porn is no, you know, it's not a mystery why there's so much porn out there. And so then when historically maybe men and or women grow up watching porn, they think this is how sex really is. And there's an addictive quality to it because it's bringing a pleasure response. Um, and it's also training their brain to this is what turns me on. So porn is similar to all the other things I mentioned, alcohol, candy, you know, sweets, they aren't inherently bad. However, how they are used and to the extent that they are used can be unhealthy. For instance, um, you know, sometimes with my couples, who have libido issues, I actually recommend that they watch porn together because sometimes there's so much shame, like uh, for a woman who's maybe like so embarrassed, like she can't even see a naked woman. Like it makes her just like shut down. She can't be naked herself because she was maybe raised in a religious culture that told you your body is shameful. And like, you know, women's breasts are shameful, yeah. you know, to try to be like, it's okay. But I obviously have them choose beautiful, like soft porn. That's like <laughs> a beautiful experience and not like, you know, 
vulgar porn. That's definitely not. There's so many different spectrums. So sometimes it can be used as a tool, um, right, for good. And just like alcohol, you know, sugar, gambling, it can be used as a tool for not good. It can be exploited and it can be an addictive quality. So that is a problem. You know, people who are addicted to porn or people who are in relationships where maybe, for instance, the male partner can only become aroused because from porn and not with their partner. That's a problem. And it's because you're training the neural network in your brain to lay down the pathways that say this really unlikely situation of, you know, four girls in a bed with you and, you know, all of this stuff. Maybe it doesn't happen in real life, but you can only get turned on by that. And that could be a problem. Or, you know, you just can only have a sexual connection to the computer or, you know, whatever reason. There's so many reasons why people have that. So there's a lot of complexity to unwind, but what the other issue with porn is, yes, it should not be used as sex education. And it is inadvertently in our culture. The other problem is a lot of our men, let's just say, I'm just talking about cis couples for now because it's easier to generalize uh, because this can happen in same sex couples too. But when men learn from porn, that that's how sex is. It's obviously going to be horrible for women (laughs) because porn for the most part is is designed and produced for a male audience and the physiological arousal responses of men and women are very different um men often can get to arousal quite quite quickly and their ejaculation is really explosive and you know they skip all of the beginning parts which is very important for women foreplay and and getting women aroused in a proper way we have erogenous zones all over our body we need more of the story more of the build up and in that we also can orgasm multiple times you know like we are also very pleasure driven creatures even though a lot of women don't believe that they are because so many women don't ever orgasm and my theory is that a lot of it is because their male partners don't know how to actually do anything because they're used to porn, which is the girl's just mm-hmm. here and receptive and we're just going to have, you know, intercourse and you should be orgasming from that when that is absolutely not the case. Um, and so there are more like progressive porn where it's more female focused in the sense of, you know, lots of foreplay, um, lots of clitoral stimulation and like showing all the other parts, but that isn't the majority. And so it creates a culture of addiction um, for some people, it can create a culture of misinformation and education around sex being incorrect. Um, it can create dynamics. And then women don't know because they watch porn and they're like, oh, I should be like that. I should just be walking into a room and be ready to be like, you know, railed and and have an orgasm. What's wrong with me? Why can't I orgasm? <laughs> it's like, that is not. And so women don't know how to ask for what they need because they've never even been shown what it is that they actually need. And they haven't been shown what is important for them and for their arousal and their physiology, unless they're very sexual or very progressive and have discovered it on their own. Um, most women feel that like they are broken because they aren't like a porn star and they don't have the same reactions that they see in the, in the movies. And so I'm not against porn a hundred percent. Like I would, I use the analogy of alcohol. Like, do I think that children should be drinking alcohol? No. Do I think we should be drinking tons of alcohol every day? No. Can you have an alcoholic beverage, you know, once or twice a month with friends and have a good time? Sure. 
But oftentimes the constraint of that comes down to the person and their own unconscious beliefs and their patterns and, and all of that. So I see porn as similar. Do I think that it's healthy for someone to like watch porn every single day? It depends on the person, maybe not as much. Um, should it be used in replacement of their intimate relationship? Probably not. Um, and is that it is nothing more than entertainment. It is a fantasy, just like a woman reading a romance novel. You know, men will be like, those men aren't real. No one like does that opens doors for you. And stuff. Oh, <laughs> it's like, yeah, but women love it. They're like, but what if it was real? What if there was a man who swept me off my feet and like took me to France and we had this like amazing romantic getaway? The same is true with porn. It's like, that's not real. Women don't just walk into a room and are ready to receive you in that way. But in their mind, that's their fantasy. But what if it was real? And it needs to be solely that. The issue is most people don't know how to disconnect. They see it's like people who play video games, you know, and, and can become violent because it trains the brain so strongly to say this is what is normal or this is what is expected. And that that conversation needs to be had and it needs to be broken down. And yes, access to young people, I think, should be highly limited. Um, it shouldn't be as accessible as it is because it it's not, it's not good. Yeah. It, it definitely influences their future desires. You know, a lot of men who watch porn have fetishes now that their partners can't or don't want to do. And that can lead to issues in the relationship. It can lead to, you know, infidelity or a partner leaving someone because their fantasy, they want it to be so real and it, it can't necessarily be because they've trained their brain for 15 years to think that the thing that they want the most is something that's not really realistic. So as long as a person can separate the two, I, I think it's okay. But the problem is when it is, you know, obviously interfering with you if you're addicted or interfering with your relationship, if it's causing an issue or if it's causing an issue with your, let's say, female partner who... Uh, doesn't know how to ask for what she needs or isn't getting what she needs because neither of you know how to actually have good sex. <laughs> so when people come to you for low libido, like you go through all of this with them. Then, <laughs> oh right? my gosh. Low, low, low libido. So not everyone porn is an issue. Yeah, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. but like you talk to both couples or both people in the It's couple. kind of like fertility sometimes and sometimes not. Um, yeah. I ask all my patients and my intake form if they're satisfied with their sex life and 95% of them say no. And, and that's wow. people who come to me for all sorts of things, not just low libido. And so it's an epidemic. Oh it's a, God. it's a silent epidemic that no one's talking about. Um, and so sometimes I'm just working with women. Um, oftentimes people come to me with a long list of things, you know, hormonal issues, gut issues, energy issues. They want to get pregnant. They have low libido. It's always just kind of thrown in there. They're on birth control. Wow. But when I yeah. work with just my libido clients that are just coming to me for libido, those are my favorite because I can dive deep into this. And libido is mm -hmm. uh, one of the other four programs that I'm creating for One Hood Wellness because it is so complicated, more in the sense of what your root cause is. So for some people, yeah, it could be porn in, this, in the relationship. For other people, it could be how they were raised. You know, they're raised with shame or, uh, you know, cultural things. For some people, it's uh, a hormonal issue. It's truly like they're on birth control <laughs> and they have a hormonal yeah. issue. Oh, totally. Or like a antidepressant mm -hmm. or yeah. whatever. Um, so and when you 
so you ha- don't have this program out. No. Yeah, it was all it. supposed to be and built during my pregnancy, and I was so <laughs> sick for the first twenty two sure. weeks. But I'm working on it, and I think I'll probably write a book one day because I think. Oh my gosh, there's so yeah, much there's to share. Just there's so, just much. Just, uh, so many books that you can write, but. Are you, um, do you have a program that teaches women about their anatomy and also in turn, what turns them on and, and what's helpful? Because I think that's what you touched on. That was the most, one of the, I think so important, one of the most important things that you touched on, because, um, it is true. We don't even, you know, so many of us don't even know our own anatomy at all. And what it it's so true. So I, I touch on anatomy in my moon medicine program. It's not directly connected to arousal. However, I will be sharing that in my libido program. And for now, before I've built mine, um, Kim Anami is a great resource. Um, and again, yeah, you can go to, I have her yeah, on. she's a great resource for courses where she kind of talks and shares, but I think even more education is needed. Like, we need a whole movement of here's how sex actually goes and here's how it works. Um, but again, when you think about what drives things from being out there, a lot of it is financial, you know, someone who can create a quick porn that appeals to men who will buy it really, you know, quickly is going to be different than a beautiful, like educational thing that teaches women how sex really is like who's gonna pay for that um i mean we would it's everything yeah it's everything in our society i mean taking a pill is easier than teaching women what how their body works right and giving and trusting that they are able to do that if we taught them from the beginning um taking a vaccine is easier than taking care of your health Mm -hmm. also because um, it's expensive to have preventative care and insurance companies don't want to cover it. So it's just like all sorts of things that are just easier. Yeah. And back. And the reason why is because that's just the way our society and culture has decided to back things up. I don't yeah. know. It's just so wild. But I love talking to you mm-hmm. and I appreciate you sharing so many um, insightful, insightful things and so many topics. So I... I can't wait to have you back on. I'm really excited for you. you. I can't wait to hear about your birth (laughs) and we'll have to do something after the babies are perfect. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's always a pleasure. So thank you.